Hey, we're going to be in uh, Jonah chapter 2, but uh, if you've if you're got an electronic Bible, go ahead and open up to Jonah chapter 1, because we're going to finish up with one last verse there before we move on. We're going to cover all of chapter 2 today. So open up your Bibles there. Several years ago, uh, there was a pastor who came from out of state, uh, Florida. He was coming to the Kevin Chapel Bible College in Marietta, and he was coming to teach youth pastor conference. And as he was making his way down from the airport on the freeway, uh, getting ready to get off, off the off ramp there at Marietta Hot Springs Road, um, he noticed that all of the freeway signs had barbed wire around them. And, and he, so he asked his driver, he says, what is up with the barbed wire on all the signs? And the guy says, well, if they don't put barbed wire up there, kids will climb up and, they, and they'll spray paint, they'll tag, they'll graffiti the signs. And he says, you mean to tell me that kids climb up 75 feet onto a freeway sign over five lanes of freeway speed traffic and, and tag signs like that? And he says, yeah, that's how it goes down. Well, in retelling this story later on that day, as he was teaching his message, as he was teaching these, these youth pastors, um, basically what he said was, imagine what radical things these kids could do if they got on fire for Jesus Christ. Just, they, I mean, they're willing to do these radical things, like climb up these freeway signs. What radical things? If we get them on a, on a trajectory in faith and ignited in their faith for Jesus, what radical things could they do? do there. His message was entitled Radical Faith. And, you know, the dictionary defines radical this way. Uh, It's something extreme. It is a detour from accepted or traditional ways. And, you know, therein lies the problem when it comes to following Jesus. Uh, Because oftentimes following Jesus, well, it will require something radical. It, It will require a detour from, from the familiar, a detour from the comfortable, a detour from the, the accepted and the traditional ways of our life, a detour to a journey of faith that is, well, a journey of faith that's sacrificial, that frankly sometimes is painful. It's been said that the difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is the painful experience that you refuse to endure. And this pain comes at the point where, well, we're asked to die to our flesh. And that, that ain't something that happens easy, is it? We, man, we, we love us, our flesh, man, and we will jealously guard it. We, you know, and, and it's just that giving our lives to Jesus and this radical work that he wants to do in us, well, it's a matter of saying, hey, I want you to die to your flesh, die to the impulses and, and instincts and desires that come so naturally to you. And instead, what I'm calling you to, the Lord would say, is a walk in obedient faith. And you know, we've got a lot of examples of Scripture of people that have been called to a radical faith. Uh, something that requires painful sacrifice, for example. Like, you know, you think about Abraham and God calling him to sacrifice Isaac. Or people that are called to do something that they don't want to do. Jesus was perfect at that. You know, Jesus tells us, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. You're like, yippee, right on. (laughs) Flesh does not say that, doesn't like that. Jesus says, hey, if a man strikes you on one cheek, you knock him out. (laughs) 
Right? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That, that, my flesh says that, right? <clears throat> Unless it's Ron Brownlow, which I can't say, just say yes, sir. Uh, yeah. But if a man strikes you on one cheek, what do you do? Jesus says you offer to him the other cheek. Or, or if someone takes away your coat, Jesus says you give him your shirt also. Radical departure from what seems natural to us. Case in point, Jonah. God goes to Jonah, he shows up, he says, hey, guess what? I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, if you've been with us, you know, Jonah was a prophet. He lived about 800 years before the birth of Jesus. He was called by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire located in modern-day Iraq. And, uh, and Assyria at this time was growing, was becoming stronger and stronger, actually becoming a military threat to the nation of Israel. And they're just a wicked people, horrible people, renowned for their violence and how, how cutthroat they could be and the way that they took great pleasure in torturing people and so on. And despite the threat, God sends Noah, this prophet of his, to go to Nineveh. Because why? Well, because God loves the whole world. He desires desperately that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And so he tells Jonah to go, and Jonah says no. Now, there's a lot that we can identify with in the story of Jonah. Our series is entitled, Hating the People That God Loves. And what we're wrestling with is these subtleties of hate and prejudice that creep into our own lives. The things that, that cause us to, to, you know, hate what people do, hate what they stand for, and then easily cross over the line where we frankly hate them as well. So we left off last week, Jonah running from God. God tells him to go to, to, to Nineveh. Jonah says no. He hops on a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish was the farthest point uh, that he could possibly run in the known world at that time. And so desiring to run from God. Now we looked last week at the consequences of hatred, what it does to our lives. That hatred distances, distances us from God. That, that hatred damages our proclamation of God. That hatred deadens our sensitivity to God. But we also saw last week the, the course of correction that God provides. And the, the course of correction, frankly, is just confession. Confession brings deliverance. And this is what happened with Jonah. He gets in this ship. He starts running away from God. But God, man, he's going to chase him down. He's going to hunt him down. He's not going to let him go without a fight. And so God causes this storm to hit the ship and all. And, and then what happens? Where does Jonah's deliverance begin? It happens when he tells the sailors on this ship, he confesses, this is all my doing. I brought this on myself. It's my fault. Throw me overboard. You guys will be fine. And so we pick up the story with Jonah having been cast out. He's been tossed down into the sea. And chapter 1 finishes up with this verse in verse 17. It says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, what we have here is a picture of the grace and of the love and of the mercy of God. Here Jonah is running from God, and yet God is chasing after him. Stories told of a pastor. He was preaching as a guest 
speaker at a church, and he was talking just about the grace and the mercy of God and, and, and all, and, and emphasizing that in his message. And somebody came up to him and they said, look, you spent a lot of time emphasizing the grace of God, but you didn't talk about man's part. He said, you know, man's got a part as well. And, uh, and, the, and he says, you know, you had a part in your salvation. And he says, you're absolutely right. Uh, God loved me, chased me down. My part was running from God. That's what I did. That's what I added to the equation. I denied the Lord. I ran from him. God loved, enough, loved me enough to chase me down. And, and so this is the thing is Jonah's running from God, but God's chasing after him, this great picture of love and mercy. And in his love, God also prepares this fish. Now, we don't know if it's a whale. We don't know if it's a fish. You'll hear me, you know, say both. Um, but, you know, we commonly think of it as a whale. Regardless, this is God's doing prepared in his grace and his love and his mercy just to reach this rebellious son. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this. It says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, this, this word slack, we get it. Don't slack off. That's the idea. The, the literal definition of this word uh, in the Greek in 2 Peter 3 is, is slow or sluggardly. And, and what Peter is saying is, is God's not slow or sluggard, sluggardly as it pertains to his judging sin and taking care of what he's going to do. And he promises to come back and he is going to come back, but, he, but he's not slow in that regard. No, what is he? He's patient. He's long-suffering because he doesn't want to, to bring his judgment too soon. He wants to see us come to repentance. And, and the idea is that God often delays his judgment to give us, frankly, time to come to our senses. And aren't you glad that he does? I mean, I think about my before Christ days. I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised to know the Lord. And like many of you, I, I was an idiot. And I just rebelled against God. And I'm so grateful for his long suffering in my life. And, and so grateful that, that you know, he, he, he acted that way. Well, that's exactly the case here. This is what is happening with Jonah. He's a picture of the coming work of Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 12, verses 39 to 40. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous, and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign is going to be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was, in the, the, was three days in three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Such a, 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 a fantastic picture. Now, in Jonah's case, this happens while he's still running away from God, but yet God demonstrates his great love for him by preparing this fish for his benefit. Now, the fish is, is a symbol of life and death. It's a, it's a symbol, as we look forward to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jonah, in the belly of this fish, symbolizes both life and death 
in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus died, was buried. That's a picture of Jonah going into the belly of the fish, but it's also a symbol of of newness of life in the sense that Jonah was delivered from the belly of that fish after three days, three nights. So life and death in that example. Additionally, the fish is also representative of death in in, in the sense that, look, if Jonah stays in the belly of this fish... Well, ultimately, what's going to happen is that whale's gastric juices are going to digest him. And so he's, if he stays there, he's dead. And so it's a symbol of death if we remain in an unrepentant state, dead in our sins and trespasses. But as well, this, this whale also represents life in the sense that in the belly of the whale, Jonah has been temporarily saved from his immediate watery death. Now, no doubt some of you are wondering, how on earth is it possible to live inside a fish? And, and, you know, I'd say a couple things to that. One, we're talking about God. So if you can get around Genesis 1-1, you can pretty much take anything. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, what do you make man out of? Dirt, the dust of the ground. Breathed life into him. So I think he's got a whale covered, right? So, so, so there's that. But interestingly, there's actually documented cases of people who have been swallowed by whales who have lived to tell the tale. In his book, 63 Years of Engineering, a guy by the name of M.G. Parvell tells the story about a ship called the Star of the East. It was hunting whales near the Falkland Islands in February 1891. And a lookout spotted a sperm whale, and two boats were launched. And one of the guys on one of these boats, a guy by the name of James Bartley, was lost overboard. Well, two days later, they caught that whale that they were trying to to get. They get it on board, they cut it open, and out spills James Bartley from the stomach of the whale. He was unconscious. He was bleached white from head to toe, from the gastric juices of the, the, the whale, but he lived to tell the, the, the story. Had no hair. His hair had all fried off. He, he's just white, albino white. And, and apparently he went on a tour. Uh, I don't know if it was England or the United States, but he went around on tour. Everybody wanted to see the guy that lived to tell the tale of being swallowed by a whale. How is that possible? Well, the whale's stomach contains air for buoyancy. Now, again, we don't know if it's a whale, we don't know if it's a fish, but what we know is it's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And so, so there's that. But here's the big idea. Here's what I want you to get. God has, by means of this whale, he's given Jonah, listen, a window of opportunity. God, because he's gracious, because he's long-suffering, because he's merciful, he's given to Jonah a window of opportunity. And there is this chance. Listen, if he continues in his rebellion, that window of opportunity is going to close and that belly of that whale is going to be his tomb. But if Jonah will repent, if if he'll turn to the Lord in faith, he'll ultimately be delivered up from the belly of the whale through confession and repentance. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you need to hear that today. Maybe you're here today, maybe you do not know 
where you will spend eternity. Maybe you yourself in a situation where you're running from God. Listen, you need to hear God's voice today that He loves you, that He cares deeply about you, that He desires that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. And that, listen, the wages of sin is death. What we earn in our, in our sin and trespasses, the way we live our lives, we earn a death sentence that when we die physically and we go to stand before the Lord, and the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and then to face judgment. I just did a funeral yesterday talking to the folks there. Hey, it's unsettling when somebody we know and love and have spent time with dies. This, this man, having died at 56 years of age, is just putting an exclamation on the verse that says, your life is like a vapor. It's here for a while and then it's gone. And everybody freaks out about death, especially when somebody you know has died. And you start asking questions like, you know, where have I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? What happens after death? And I told this group yesterday, what happens is you go before the judgment seat of God. You will, you will be judged. And people go, well, wow, that's not very comforting. Well, it's not meant to comfort. That's the bad news. <laughs> the good news of the gospel is that there's a God in heaven who loves you. A God in heaven who has gone to great lengths to pay the penalty for your sin. And that he offers you the opportunity for abundant life, for, for newness of life, to be forgiven of your sins, to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And it, it rests in confession. Confession means to agree with God. That, that I agree with God that it, this is sin. We're going to call it what it is. This is not, you know, my, my genetic predisposition to this or that or the other thing. This is not that thing that, oh, you know, let's just give it a name and let's give it a diagnosis and let's call it that. No, it's sin. Let's just, let's just be candid. And, and, and what is sin, man? It is that thing that separates me from God. I got to call it sin. I got I to gotta say, God, that is sin. My confession is I've done that sin. And my confession is I believe, Jesus, that you've died for that sin. And some of you today, you need to know that God has paid the penalty and he, and he gives you an opportunity right now. It's a free gift to say, will you accept my free gift of eternal life? If you'll confess that you're a sinner, if you'll confess that Jesus is the Savior, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he died, buried, and was risen again on the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures, conquering Satan and sin and death, that you can be saved. Well, notice that's exactly what Jonah does there. Now we get to chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. Then, when then? After three days, we will come back to that. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Listen, if you cry out to the Lord today in your affliction, God will answer your prayer. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Here's the idea. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he, pray, he prayed a prayer. And the prayer essentially was this, God, if, your, enemy, if, if, if your people get caught up in, in, in sin and their enemies start you know, over, overtaking them, overcoming them, Hey, remind them to look again to your holy temple and pray. It's not the physical geography of the temple. It's what the temple represents. Have your people turn to the God 
who is enthroned in the temple. The God who will save them, the God who will deliver them. And so Jonah says, wow, I've been cast out of your sight, but you know what? I'm going to look again to you, God. That's what he's saying. The waters, verse 5, surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. In other words, he's like, I, I, I was in this, the guts of this whale, and we went down, down, down. And, and it, can you imagine what it was like inside that, well, that whale's belly? Can you imagine just how hellish that existence was? We had some friends years ago, they uh, were part of instructing people in children's ministry and how to make children's ministry more interactive. And they actually were teaching Jonah at their church and they took their classroom and they covered the entire inside of the classroom in visqueen. And then they put in a bunch of space heaters in there and a bunch of humidifiers in there. And then they decorated it to look like the inside of a whale. And then just to give it the perfect touch... They took a pound of dead fish and stuck it in all the trash cans in the room. Now imagine what that room felt like. It assaulted every bit of your senses walking in the door of that thing. And and Jonah's got the real deal, man. Children's mystery. I can't wait till we get our own facility. We can do stuff like that. That'd be awesome. I hear that story. I'm like, how long did it take you to get the stink out of the room? Anyway. But he says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. In other words, I'm going to die here. That's the attitude. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Three days this happens. It's like... Good gravy. Then he prays, right? Now, let me just say this. If it takes you three days in that kind of environment, in that kind of oppressive, overwhelming, can I say it, hell that you're living in, if it takes you three full days before you pray, you're packing some serious hate. And this is what Jonah's got going on. And especially, think about it. Think about the power of prayer. Jonah knew about prayer, but think about the power of prayer. What does the Bible say about prayer? Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, now Now, that's not like, oh, hey, you know, I'm a magic fairy genie and you can say whatever you want and prayer, you know, God's the pinata, prayer is the stick and just beat... Beat God with the, the stick of prayer and you get you out come all the goodies, you get whatever you want. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The Apostle John said a similar thing. He said, now this is the confidence that we have in him, in Jesus, that if we ask anything in accordance to his will, and that's the idea, if we ask anything in accordance to his will, he hears us. Now that alone right there ought to cause us to run to God in prayer. But how often do we neglect the greatest powerful thing that we've got at our disposal. And, and so, I mean, incredible promises where prayer is concerned. The Apostle Paul said this about prayer. He's talking to the Philippians. He's talking about anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And then the very next verse, he gives us the promise why. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. How many of you have ever lost sleep over stress or anxiety? Let me see a show of hands. Right? And what's the promise? The promise is you don't need to do that. You can pray and you can, and you can trust in prayer that God is going to lift those anxieties. So why is it that we don't pray more? Well, in Jonah's case, it's hatred. James said that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I love this quote by a guy named E.M. Bounds. He wrote a book called The Power Through, Pro Power Through Prayer, which is written at the turn of the century, my most favorite book on prayer, one of my most favorite books of all time. But here's what he said. Quote, the men who have done the most for God in this world have been early on their knees. If God is not first in our thoughts and efforts in the morning, he'll be last during the remainder of the day. End quote. Now, this is the power that we have in prayer. Jonah is not doing that. Why? In his hate, he's lost sight of that. And now he's so vengeful, he holds out for three full days. And so again, just by way of contrast, think about it. Jonah, in the most hellish environment, will stay there for three days because of hate. But on the other side of this, Jesus, listen, because of his great love, he prescribes the hellish environment. He prescribes it for Jonah. Why? Because he wants Jonah to remember him. That's why. He wants Jonah to quit looking to himself and to his own hate-filled hate heart and the self-righteousness that he's so stubbornly holding on to. God says, you know what? That's, that, uh, that's toxic. So I'm going to create for you the worst environment possible. Yes, it's going to save you from immediate death of the ocean. It will ultimately be your death if it doesn't, you know, whatever doesn't, whatever doesn't kill you is going to make you stronger kind of thing. So the, here you go kind of thing. Well, it's God's love that prescribes this for him to go through. Jonah says in verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. Now again, how did Jonah get to this place in his heart? Listen, God had to place him in this bleak situation for him to, to turn his heart to the Lord. And so there in verse 1, the Lord God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. In the Hebrew, it means there, here's how it reads in the Hebrew, God sovereignly caused uh, intensely to be, uh, I, I'm sorry, yeah, God sovereignly caused and intensely caused to be and prepared and appointed this fish to swallow Jonah. Here's a huge lesson that I've learned in my faith. That God often prepares whales to swallow us up. And, and so sometimes, you know, you go through these different, it could be a medical whale, you're going through some sort of an illness, you, you know, a relational whale, God lets some relationship catastrophically fail. Uh, you know, uh, years ago I had a gal, her, her fiancé broke up with her and she's sobbing over the whole thing, never realizing. Lady, this is the biggest blessing you ever got in your life. And she looks in the rearview mirror now of her life and she thanks God for that every single day. 
I, it could be a financial well that swallows you up. I had a guy come to me, and, and he'd lost everything financially. he just ruined financially. And he said, in hindsight, the rearview mirror. Rearview mirror, is, faith is always wonderful, you know? The, the windshield, not so much. When he was looking out the windshield of his financial ruin, it, it, it just it sucked to be him, is what it, it, what it, you know, it's just a hard place. But in the rearview mirror, man, here's what he said to me. He said, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. He said, it wasn't until God took it all away that I realized how messed up my priorities were. See, often it's the things that swallow you up and which you think are going to destroy you that are the very things that God has sent to save you. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Maybe today you're in that kind of a situation. Maybe, maybe I, can I be so corny as to say you're in a whale of a situation right now? And, and you're overwhelmed and you're thinking that this thing's going to kill you. Hey, could it be possible that this is God's prescription for you? That he's prescribed that whale to save you? What does Jonah do in the belly of that whale after three days? of this prescribed hellish condition, he says, I'm going to look again to you, God. He begins to pray. I rem- I'm reminded of the, of the hymn, it's an 1880s hymn, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Listen to the lyrics. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged to take it to the Lord in prayer. So Jonah here, he's praying. We continue verse 8 in the midst of his prayer. He says, those who regard worthless idols, they forsake their own mercy. But I, he says, verse 9, will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And so he starts here, he says, those who regard worthless idols, they forsake their own mercy. Again, listen to it in the Hebrew. Those who continuously cause and intensely keep the idols of nothingness and falsehood forsake their own mercy. This is, this is the thing. What is Jonah's worthless idol? Here it is. His religious self-righteousness. That's, that's his worthless idol. He looks at the Ninevites and he says, they're wicked, they're awful, they deserve to die. And he thinks in his religious self-righteousness, he thinks he knows better than God that he should be able to hate the Ninevites, that he should be able to overrule God, and he alone should be able to condemn them to hell. Why? Because he's righteous? Listen, as long as he held on to that idol, and this is what he now understands, as long as I held on to that with my cold dead fingers, I'm forsaking my own mercy. Pastor Chuck preached a message on this and he says it better than me so I just put his quote in here I'm just going to read it to you but here's what Chuck says about forsaking your own mercy he says you're, you're creating your own hell 
a misery in which you are going to find yourself sitting and the misery is of your own making. And it come from your own foolishness in thinking that you know better than God what's good for you. It's a lie, he says, that you know better for your own life than God does. It's a lie for you to think that you can find happiness apart from God. It's a lie for you to think that you can escape from God or from the call of God or from the presence of God. And for you to attempt to do so, you are only bringing misery and disaster upon yourself. You are forsaking your own mercy because God is merciful and loving And whatever God has in mind for you is the very best thing that could possibly ever happen to you, although you might not think it at the time. Man, powerful. And that's why Jonah here in this prayer, he concludes by saying, salvation is of the Lord. You see, up until this point, Jonah never considered that he needed the saving mercy of God every bit as much as the Ninevites needed the saving mercy of God. Man, we need to take a walk with that. Jonah never considered this. Up until now, man, he's thinking he's righteous. So what does God do? God sticks him in the belly of the whale. And there in the belly of the whale, Jonah realizes, I need to be saved just every bit as much as them. I need to be saved. And without God doing this work, Man, it, it just, it, it, it's not going to get it done. And so he says, I'll pay what I vowed. In other words, apparently what happens there is he's in the belly of the whale is at some point he, like all of us have done at some point, he says, just get me out of here, God. I'll do whatever you want. You want me? Fine. You want me to go to Nineveh? Fine. I'll go to Nineveh. Just get me out of this well. And so here he, he says, as he's continuing the prayer, he says, I'll fulfill my vow. I said I'd do it. I will do it. So, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, I had a gal email me this week, a member of our church, very astute uh, Bible study, uh, you know, gal committed to her Bible study. She had a great question. She said, okay, I understand Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq. understand that a whale swallowed or a fish swallowed Jonah, whatever it was. And, I, and, 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 and okay, I'm looking at a map. And, and I, where on earth is a whale going to, put, going to deliver Jonah? Because as you look at a map, geographically speaking, you have the Mediterranean which, you know, Israel and Lebanon and, and all right there in the Mediterranean. And the closest point to, to, to Nineveh is about 350 miles. And then you go to the other side, which is, which is the Persian Gulf, and you go, okay, well, the closest insertion point there, I use some, some Navy SEAL vernacular there, the closest point they could insert him there would be about 150 miles, unless the fish decided to swim up the, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which, whichever one dumps out that's large enough, and then they could just dump them right at Nineveh. So she says, how do, you, how do we explain that? 
And here, here's how we can explain it a few different ways. We can say, well, you know, the fish swam down around the, the Horn of Africa, came around, went into the Persian Gulf, went up the river and dumped him there. Or we can say he did that long trek, dumped him 150 miles from there. Or he dropped him off in the Mediterranean where he set sail from and dropped him somewhere in Lebanon. And it was, you know, 300 miles, 350 miles, four, maybe even 400 miles. That's what that's my my thinking is that that's what it, what happened and it does no doesn't compromise the text at all because what do we see there in verse ten the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah not in Nineveh just onto dry land Jonah Jonah had a trek he had to walk and we'll see this this carry out as we get into chapter three next week but as we conclude here today here's here's what I want to leave you with I want to leave you with three questions to take a walk with as we close. Here's, here's the first question I would have you jot down and, and just this week take a walk with as you prayerfully consider Jonah's life and you, you think about personal application of the lessons. Number one, is there an area in your life where you are forsaking your own mercy? Is there an area in your life where you're forsaking your own mercy? Where in your foolishness, you're thinking that you know better than God what's good for you. That, that you think you know better than God what's, what's best for your life. That, that you're thinking, I can find happiness apart from God. Or I can escape from God, or I can escape from God's call, or whatever it is. I can hold on to this anger, this bitterness. Are you forsaking your own mercy in any area of your life? Second question, do you have a worthless idol that you're holding on to? Is there some sort of worthless idol that you are holding on to? Remember for Jonah, it's his religious self-righteousness. Third question, final question, is it going to take a whale for you to forsake it? Does God got to have a whale of some situation swallow you up for you to forsake the worthless idol that you're hanging on to?